All right, this morning we're going to be looking at two chapters in the Confession, chapters 12 and 13, which deals with the topics of adoption and sanctification. Uh, Now, as we begin, the title of of chapter 12 really alone is sufficient to remind us of what we learned back in chapter 6 regarding the fall of man and the subsequent effects that had on all humanity. Um, And and this is important for us to understand as we think about this concept of adoption, because contrary to popular belief, we are not all children of God in the sense that God is our father in a covenantal way. God is our creator, and in that sense, he can be called the father, that is the one from whom all of us originate. Uh, But he is not a father to all in the sense of that special relationship, that special bond that a child has with his or her father. Uh, You'll you'll hear people um, constantly say, we're all children of God, right? That's a a common phrase. We want to ask, what do you mean by that uh, phrase? To try to dig that out. Because we recognize the scripture shows us that by nature, we're all estranged from God, having gone our own way. And because of that estrangement, we're spiritual orphans as we go through this world. And so this chapter really seeks to remind us of the unspeakable privilege we have of God making us his children, of God granting us this glorious covenant that we have been brought into with his one son, Jesus Christ, And through him, we are granted that privilege of being called sons and daughters of the living God. So our relationship with God dramatically and eternally changed when God caused us to be born again. So even though this chapter only consists of one paragraph, it's just loaded. It's packed with so many rich theological encouraging truths about our new relationship with God. So let's begin by reading this paragraph together. If I could have somebody read that for us, chapter 12. Okay, I'll come back to you. Scott, go ahead. God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. Yet, they are never cast off but are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Amen. That, that is a rich paragraph. That, that is wonderful uh, to think through. That first sentence there says that God has granted that all who are justified would receive the grace of adoption. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that will taught on justification And if you remember, the term justify is a legal term. It has legal implications. Um, We kind of have that visual where we stand in a criminal courtroom, and rather than hearing the verdict of condemned, which is what we 
deserve for our rebellion against God, we rather hear the verdict of justified or righteous. And we heard that because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf in paying for our sins and giving us his righteousness. Now, like justification, adoption is also a judicial act. It's the bestowal of a status upon us. God confers upon us the unspeakable status of child of God. So to kind of continue that courtroom analogy, you can kind of visualize leaving that criminal courtroom and going down the hall into a civil courtroom. And in that civil courtroom, we hear another verdict about how our status has changed. And this time our status has changed from being a slave to being made a son or daughter. Right, so we're left in wonder coming out of the criminal courtroom. We walk into the civil courtroom, and now we're in wonder as well that, that God has not just justified us and then sent us off and say, now you're on your own. Right? He brings us into his family and makes us his child. And this glorious state has been conferred upon us, the confession says here, in and for the sake of God's only Son, Jesus Christ. As we're brought into union with Christ, brought into union with the unique Son of God, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. But it's not only in Him that we're adopted, it's also, the confession says, for Him. We are adopted for Christ, that is, for His sake, that He might have a people for Himself. Uh, I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. I want you to see just an amazing passage that speaks about, in Hebrews chapter 2, that speaks about our relationship with God and, and how that is viewed from the perspective of the Son of God. So Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to start at verse 10, and I'm going to read through verse 13. For it was fitting that he, speaking of, of Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And listen to this. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, this is the Son of God. This is referring to Jesus. And it's an amazing statement when you think about this. He's not ashamed to call you brother or brothers and sisters. That should just put you on your face, right? The Son of God is not ashamed for you to be in the family. And you think about the weight of your own sinfulness you're ashamed of, of, you know, I'm not worthy of this uh, status that, that has been conferred upon me. And yet we have the Son of God 
conferring upon us that glorious title of child of God and His relationship to us. It's overwhelming to think about the love of God toward us in Christ and the view that God has of us in His Son. That's worthy of much meditation. Now, as we go into this second sentence, it says this, By this, they, those who are justified and have received this grace of adoption, are accounted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. Now, here's, here's another wonder for you out of 1 John chapter, chapter 3. Um, this word, this first word in 1 John 3, 1, see, it's a Greek word that means behold, look upon, it, it calls for your attention. It's, this is important. Listen to this. Behold this statement that is about to be made. And here's what John says. Behold or see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. You, you hear the amazement in John's voice there? The wonder He's calling our attention to this. He's saying, look at this. Think of the status that has been conferred upon us. We have been called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Right? So it's not just, hey, when you get in your glorified state, then you're worthy to be called a child of God. You're a child now with all your struggles and fighting and wrestling against sin. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Okay, So that, that day is coming for us. What we will be has not yet appeared. But that day is coming for us. All that said, we are God's children right now, in the here and now. Romans 8.17, Paul says, If children, then heirs, inheritors, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I was reading a book in preparation for the, the chapter on adoption. Um, it's called Sons in the Sun by David Gardner. Um, it's, it's a really good book. I haven't read it from cover to cover. It's very extensive. It's all just dealing with the riches and glory of adoption. Um, if you're not interested in really studying it out, you probably don't want to spend the money because it was a fairly expensive book. But if you're looking for a really in-depth study on adoption, it's excellent. But one of the things that Garner brought out in, this, in, in his study was that when he was looking at adoption from the perspective of a Roman culture in which Paul was writing, uh, adoption typically happened to older children who were trustworthy and who would represent the name that they were inheriting well. Okay? 
so, so the concept back there was more, it was more for the one who was doing the adopting that the family name would continue and that it would be a good name that would continue. So very rarely did adoption have happened to untested children who haven't yet proven themselves to see if they are worthy of that. Now you think of the contrary nature of that with, with our adoption. God, God takes us rebels against him, makes us his own. How often we don't honor his name like we ought to. And yet you read passages like Hebrews 2 where he says, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. It, it just blows your, blows your mind, right? It, it's not in the same sense where, where God looks upon us and says, yeah, you're trustworthy, you're loyal, you're faithful, you're mine. I'll give you my name. He says, you're all jacked up and everything's wrong with you. And I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you new. And I'm going to give you my spirit and keep working in you that which is pleasing in my sight. What is that in the Greek, jacked up? <laughs> That's a good question. Desmond, you got any uh, insight on that? That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Uh, but, but it's really, it, 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 it causes us to wonder, and that's why John, in 1 John 3, it, he's in amazement. He's like, we're the children of God. I mean, I mean look at us, right? With, with all of our faults and all of our strains and everything we are, God says, you're mine, you're my children, and I love you. And I've sent my son to live for you and die for you. So it, it's, a, it's a glorious reality what God has done for us in Christ. All right, for, for time's sake, I'm just going to read sentences three and four here. And I'm um, just going to comment on, on sentence four. So it goes on here and says, they inherit his name. Think, think of how important that is based on what I just shared about adoption in a Roman culture. Right? It was really important that you're worthy of the name that you have been given. And that's our desire, right? Is to walk in a manner that is worthy of that name. That's, that's our longing. But we don't always do that, that perfectly. And rather than just you know, disowning us, turning us back and just saying, you're not worthy to be adopted, he just keeps working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. So they inherit his name. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. We see in sentence four that as children of God, we are given compassion. The confession cites here Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Uh, that, that verse has often rebuked me <laughs> as I interact with my daughter. And I remember this truth. That, that's how the gospel informs your parenting. It's like, think of how God deals with you. Now that's how you ought to deal with your, your children. But this word compassion here connotes tender affection. Uh, that's how God deals with us now tenderly as a father does, seeking the best for his child even when the child doesn't understand what is best, which is often. And then he goes on here, the confession goes on, and he says he also protects us. 
And even though the confession doesn't cite this uh, particular text, I think one of the best displays of this truth is found in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, when we think about God's protection over us as his children. Jesus says here, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and here's the protection, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The glorious protection that we have in Christ. 1 Peter 1.5, referring to God's people, says, who, God's people, by God's power are being guarded. Other translations say protected or being protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so if you're at the sunrise service, I, I kind of expounded on that verse last week, but just that aspect of God guards us through faith. He keeps us believing in Jesus. Norm. What was the verse that you had posted before that? John 10, 27 through 29. Yep. Right? So he guards us through faith, and that faith is a gift from him to us. God, God protects us. And, and again, that's important to see that he doesn't protect us from suffering or from persecution, but he protects us in the sense that he's going to bring us all the way to glory. Right? He protects us from the evil one snatching us out of his hand. A really good example of this. Look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writing his final words here to his, his young disciple. Second Timothy 4. And I'll, I'll pick up here in verses 6 through 8. And in particular, I want you to see what verse 6 says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, church history tells us, in particular, the church historian uh, Eusebius, that, that Paul was decapitated for his faith. Now, we don't have it in the, in the Word, so I want to be careful, but church history would lead us to that, to that conclusion. Um, so, was, was God protecting Paul? Right? Is, has he been protecting all the martyrs throughout history? Well, it depends on how you understand protecting. Right? Because look at what Paul says going on a little bit further here towards the end of his letter. Look, pick up with me here in verse 16. He says, At my first defense... No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. So there you have an aspect of deliverance that God spared. He protected Paul's physical life in that moment. But then watch Paul's conclusion here in verse 18. The Lord 
will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You see that? Right? That, that's the focus for Paul. He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He's not going to spare my life. I'm not guaranteed that God's going to spare my life here on this, on this earth. Right? Matter of fact, we have plenty of promises that tell us that suffering is expected for, for the Christian. But the promise here is that God will protect us eternally. He will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's the protection that the confession is, is getting at here. And that's, that's the yeah. Because if you have a king who thinks he's going to protect you, that's right. He's not talking about here and now. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, Romans eight, I think, bears that out as well. That's another cross reference there um, that I'm going to ask them to add next time they update the confession. But Romans eight uh, verses thirty-five through thirty-nine, that's really helpful. Talks about um, the, the aspect of we're being uh, led to the slaughter as sheep, as Christians. But Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life or all these other things are able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right? So that's the, that's the protection that's being spoken of. So through adoption, we're protected by God. And then we're also provided for, the confession says here. And then goes on here and says that we're chastened by him as a father. Look with me at Hebrews 12. Verses 5 through 11. And maybe I can have somebody read that for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen. Uh, Such a helpful passage to remind us of God's love for us in discipline, right? In in the aspect of he's concerned with our holiness and conforming us into the image of his son, and he's working in us to that end and everything that he does, right? So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we we can at times confuse this aspect of Am I being condemned by God because I'm going through a a difficult season? Has God cast me off? Is He done with me? And while that chastening is painful, as we just read, the confession says here rightly in this last sentence, yet they are never cast off, but are sealed 
for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So although, again, we may be tempted to confuse the disciplining love of God with being cast off, we have this glorious promise that as His children, He will never leave us or forsake us. We are heirs of everlasting salvation. So the discipline we experience is not a condemning discipline. It's a conforming discipline. As God makes us into the image of His Son, which is one aspect of what the Bible calls sanctification, and which now leads us into chapter 13. Any questions or comments from uh, chapter 12 on adoption before we go into sanctification? Norm. Amen. Praise God. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's move on now to uh, chapter thirteen. Did you have anything? Kind of like a half raise. I was. Uh, a, a box. Uh, a question for the box. Or something? Okay. All right. I like to put a visual into his yeah. holding us into yes. his image. Yes, he is. And it, it's it's painful. It's painful. Yes. Yes. Um, I wanted to know what's the difference between the. Regeneration? Yeah, it says, as many as received him, to them gave the power to become Come. the sons of God. And so when the Spirit enters yes. us, we're born again. That's correct. As children of God? Yes. Or is that is that the same process? Yeah, so it's 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 okay. virtually simultaneous. So as we're as we're born again. We're also given the status of adoption as children, okay. as children of God. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Let's let's move on here then to uh, chapter thirteen on sanctification, and let's go ahead and begin by reading that first paragraph. So, if I could get somebody to read paragraph one for us here, Will, thank you. Okay, very good. Thank you. You know, when you think about the term sanctification, if I asked you to give me just, you know, a one or two sentence definition of that, how would you define sanctification? Just let's throw that out there. See how, how you... I would think sanctification would be like the, I don't know how to explain it, like the adulting of yourself by, by, some, by like a spirit maybe, or like a, 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 you know, your higher power, but like at the moment that you don't know what's happening. Okay, yeah, a, a little 
more than that. There's definitely the, the Holy Spirit working in us during that time. So, um, yeah, that would be um, true. Peter? It's just the uh, Spirit of God molding the believer progressively more and more to the image of Christ. Yes, very good. Okay. So, and, and that's, that's the typical definition, right? The Spirit of God molding us more and more into the image of Christ. But something that the confession brings out here, um, which I, th- I think is helpful, it starts by talking about sanctification, like what Peter just referred to would, is something we would refer to as progressive sanctification, where God progressively makes us look more and more uh, like Jesus. But this confession starts out here um, by talking about what we would call definitive sanctification or definite sanctification. And what that means is this one-time act of God setting us apart for himself. In other words, when you see that word sanctified used in Scripture, it can sometimes be referring to what Peter just mentioned, but sometimes it can be referred to something that's being set aside from common use to a holy use, or something that is set apart as holy. Um, As a matter of fact, God himself is described as being sanctified, right? And now we know that it's not what what Peter just referred to, which is a common definition there, that God is becoming progressively holy, right? He is in, he's holy in himself, and he's unchangeable in that. Uh, But he is set apart, as holy. And I want you to look with me at a passage that speaks to this end in Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. This is the story of Nadab and Abihu. And it says this, verses, starting verse 1 here. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So that aspect of I will be sanctified by all those who come near to me is that aspect of God declaring that I'm holy, I'm set apart, and I will be treated as such in this, in this way. So he is holy. Now, as his people, he has also done that for us. He has set us apart as holy, which is what we would say is definitive sanctification. And because that's what we are in position, we are called to be holy. And that's that aspect of progressive sanctification. We're being more and more conformed into the image of his son. Good passage that speaks about this this aspect of definitive sanctification is Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, where it says that as believers, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, right? So there's this transfer that has taken place. We're taken from one realm and we're brought and transferred into another realm. 
We're taken from the world and we're brought into the kingdom of God. We're taken from being unholy to now being holy, set apart for God. So definitive sanctification is what's being described in this first sentence here in this paragraph. That moment, as the confession says, of being given a new heart and a new spirit is that moment of definitive sanctification, being set apart. We go from being rebels against God to being called saints of God, those those who are set apart for him. And you see a number of passages um, that refer to this and that the confession cites here. So get some people to jump in and help read. These are pretty much all these right at the beginning of Paul's letters. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Called to be saints. Okay, good. So, so called to be saints. Called to be holy ones. Called to be set apart ones. Okay, 2 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Yeah, okay, so again, that's a, that's a status that has been conferred upon us. So with all the saints, all the holy ones who are in the whole of Achaia. And most of you are familiar with the reality that believers are referred to as saints. And depending on your theological upbringing and where you came from, that may throw you off a little bit because yeah. you think of saints only in this realm. Um, the, the ones who are really holy, quote-unquote, or really set apart, really special. Um, and yet that term is used for every believer in the, in the New Testament. We're all saints. We're all set-apart ones. We're all holy ones. And again, all because of the work of God in Christ. Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Anybody want to read that? Very good. Okay, so again, here's this, here's this address here to these believers in Ephesus. Here's who they are. Uh, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Somebody want to read that? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are Philippi with overseers. Okay, good. So no, notice the distinction here, right? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, right? Some people get this concept that uh, the, the leadership within the church are, they're the saints, or they're the set-apart ones. And here Paul says, all the saints with the overseers and deacons, everybody in Philippi, who are in Christ Jesus. That's what makes us set-apart. And then Paul in Colossians 3.12 refers to the people at Colossae, the believers in Colossae. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that's who you are, behave that way. Right? Behave because of who you are. Don't behave to become, but be, behave because of who, who you are. Okay? So probably the, the text that best deals with this aspect of, of definitive sanctification is Romans chapter 6. I'm going to go ahead and read this with you. Go with me to Romans chapter 6. And as we read through this, what we want to be careful of is that we don't read Romans 6 as a prescription of what you can be in Christ, but rather as a description 
of what God has done for you in Christ already and who you are because of that. So let's split this reading up here. Who would be willing to read verses 1 through 14 in Romans 6? Sabrina, thank you. And then who would be willing to read verses 15 through 23? Okay. Nancy? Okay. I'll give, I'll give Nancy um, that one. Um, as, you re- as we read through this, I want you to notice how many times you hear Paul point back to the past of what, what God has done in Christ and how that relates to the present, okay? So let's go ahead and begin reading Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we say? because we are not under law, but under grace. Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slave, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from your heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then of the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Amen. Thank you. Really helpful. Um, If you don't like marking up in your Bible, maybe you could print it out. But it'd be good to to print that out to remind you 
of who you are in Christ, what God has done for you in Christ. Go back and mark how many past tense things you see there of what God has done in Christ. And in light of that, here's how you ought to walk. Here's how you ought to behave. So from from definitive sanctification, from God setting us apart as holy, that one-time initial act flows now progressive sanctification as we're being made into his image. And this is what the confession goes on to state in the rest of this first paragraph. In sentence two, it says here, they are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same power, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. Just as this word and the spirit worked effectively in our justification, they also worked effectively in our sanctification. We don't turn to something else, right? We stick with the same thing. And we see a few passages that refer to this aspect. John 17, 17, Jesus said to the Father for the disciples, which included, includes you and me, according to what verse 20 says, that he's not praying only for those, but for all who will believe in him. Sanctify them in the truth. How does that happen? How does that sanctification happen? Your word is truth. Sanctification will not happen apart from the word of God. That is the means that God has ordained for it to take place. You're not going to grow in your knowledge of God and in holiness apart from the word of God. In Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Again, the word is the means by which the cleansing takes place. Okay, so we see from these passages that the word is effective in our sanctification. And I want you to look at another passage which, with me that will talk about how the spirit is effective in our sanctification. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Some of these passages were a little bit longer, so that's why I'm having you turn to them rather than posting them. Ephesians chapter 3, and let's, if I could have somebody read verses 16 through 19. Or if you want to drop back to 14, because I know 16 is kind of picking it up midstream. Through uh, 19, please. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comfort in all with all the saints for the breath and length and height and depth, and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, good. So I want you to want you to notice here how it is that we are strengthened with power, what verse 16 says. Through his spirit okay so again the spirit is the means by which the spirit and the word work effectively in our sanctification in fact you can you can kind of say it this way the spirit uses the word to sanctify us and both are absolutely necessary the spirit always drives us back to the sufficiency of the word and the word is ineffective apart from the spirit both are essential and necessary. 
Okay, and then the last sentence here in the confession, I'm just going to drop down a little bit for the sake of time. It says, at the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces so that they practice true holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I've put a, a chart up like this in the past, but that's how I view what, how the Bible describes progressive sanctification, is that you're in a war. There's ups and downs, uh, peaks and valleys, and it's also, it's usually in those valley times that we're like, am I a Christian? Do I even believe? Um, but the fact that the Spirit continues to work in us and make us holy is evidence of our status before God, right? So hopefully you can look back over your life. If you've been a Christian, let's say, for, for 10 years, um, you can look back over your life and, yeah, you see, you see valleys, but hopefully you also see progress that's being made. Uh, desires are changing. God's killing sin in your life. Um, things are happening um, that are encouraging you. Um, you're continuing to give yourself to the means that God has given for us to grow. And so you can see why the title progressive sanctification has been given to this doctrine. It's because we're making progress in the faith in the midst of setbacks, but God is continuously moving us uh, forward. Um, all right, so for the sake of time here, I'm going to jump down to Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead and comment while I'm looking at my notes here. When you were saying that there might be a lot of valleys, but there's a progression, one of the benefits yeah. of being part of a local church is yeah. people see you, they yes. observe you. So yeah. there's yeah. for people that think that never, nothing is happening yeah. and they're really under yeah. a heavy burden. Yeah. We come alongside and say, I see evidences of grace. Yes. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that, that is always very encouraging. Okay, for the sake of time, let's go to paragraph uh, two, and I'm just going to quickly go through this because it's so, it's so helpful. Paragraph two says, This sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. God is sanctifying us. We're making progress, but we recognize, as the confession states here, that some remnants of corruption still remain in every part. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, you can attest to that. All right? You still see that war with, within you. There is corruption, and it remains. And from this corruption, the confession says, arises this continual and irreconcilable war between your flesh and the Spirit of God working in you. Now, it's important to note here that this war is continual. There is no time out. There are no days off or vacations in this war. It's constant, right? We'd like for that to happen, but the flesh is always present. And it's also irreconcilable, meaning that there will never be peace between your flesh and your spirit until glory, right? Your flesh is not going to stop warring against the Spirit. I'm just going to jump to a couple passages that relate to this. Galatians 5, 17. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. They stand in opposition to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then Peter exhorted his readers, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Present tense. Not that they waged war against your soul at one point, but no longer happened. Right? So we've got to be very careful. In the history of the church, there have been those who have embraced an erroneous doctrine teaching that you can be done with sin in this life. And that will lead to great discouragement and depression if you believe that. Because the flesh is not going to stop kicking back. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't make progress and that we can't continue to fight. We're called to fight. We're to strive for holiness without which no man will see the Lord. But we recognize what the Scripture has promised us is that this war will end only on that day where we go to meet the Lord or He comes back for us. Okay, and then just quickly going into this last point here, last paragraph, which states, In this war the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. They pursue a heavenly life and gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king has given in his word. So the confession shows us here the reality of this war is that there are seasons where we feel that sin has the upper hand, so to speak, in our lives. Or perhaps there's a particular sin carried over from your when you are unconverted that you have a specific struggle with and you're constantly fighting against. And at times it can be predominant, the confession says here. And again, that goes back to that chart that I laid out. It's in those, those valley times where you see that sin getting more of an upper hand in your life. But the, the confidence that we have is because the Spirit of God is working in you. He will produce holiness in you. You won't stop fighting. You're going to keep warring because it's going to be the Spirit who gives you the strength to continue to press on and make progress. So we don't want to take this, this mindset that it's all doom and gloom. I'm never going to know this, you know, the greatness of all that God has until glory. So, you know, it's just going to be a um, kind of give up in the here and now. That's not what the scripture says. It calls us to fight. And in this fight, there is joy in the midst of it. So let's, let's not swing to the other side of the pendulum here and be all doom and gloom. Uh, we can make progress. And your life, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you can probably see areas in your life where, yeah, I'm not done with that sin yet. It's not completely killed as I want it to be, but it's far less effective in my life as it was at one point. And in that, I give God thanks and give Him glory for working in me that which is pleasing in His sight. Last thing that I want to say is when we see that sin getting an upper hand, one of the first things that we want to do is to kind of think through, am I neglecting anything in my life as a Christian? Am I neglecting any spiritual discipline? Um, I don't know about you, but I can almost automatically trace where I see sin getting up an upper hand to some neglect of the means of grace that God has given. So I look at my time in the Word, my time in meditation of the Word, my time in prayer, my time in fellowship with the people of God, being accountable to one another. 
we want to look at those, those areas um, and think through how we can use the means of grace that the Lord has given <coughs> to continue to fight. Right? We've been given weapons for this warfare that we find ourselves in. And just as a soldier wouldn't walk out onto the battlefield without first assessing that he has the proper weapons for his warfare, so we too must be diligent in making sure that we're equipped to fight effectively. Because God has given us everything, he says in 2 Peter 1, everything that we need for life and godliness is given to us there in his word. And he is patient, mercifully patient with us, amen? As he continues to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So may God give us grace to continue to apply the means of grace so that we may continue to grow in that grace. And with that, I'll finish with 2 Peter 3.18. But grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May that, be, may, may that govern all of our thinking. I want to know my Lord more. I want to commune with Him more deeply and sweetly. And as I do, that sin will be killed in my life and continue to be so until that glorious day. So let's pray. If you have any questions, submit them to the box and we'll head into the sanctuary. Father, thank you again for this time of of study. And first, we thank you that we can call you Father, that by grace we have been made your children that through the work of your only beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the unique Son, you have brought us into this relationship with yourself where we are called sons and daughters of the living gods. We praise you. We thank you for that. Father, whatever status we're given in this world, they all pale in comparison to this one status of a child of God. So thank you for your kindness to us. And Father, may that reality cause us to strive for holiness. May you quicken our affections for deeper intimacy with yourself. Father, I pray that where we're neglectful in the means of grace that you have given to us, that you would help us in those areas, Lord. We recognize, as we've read, that the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. And so we beg for grace to help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Thank you for your patience with us as you continue to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity that we have now to corporately go into the sanctuary and hear the word of God, uh, another means of grace as we can sing together and pray together, take the supper together. Thank you for all these means of grace that we've been given on the Lord's day. Use them profitably, we pray. May we look more like Jesus and may we love him more at the end of this day than we did when we woke up this morning. We'll be sure to give you the glory and praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.